Mm-hmm. All right, I only have 6.0 MPBBS, so I'm going to go ahead and turn the video off and yeah, ask you to do the same. Six, man. On the internet. I only have six internets. You have like 70. We got 78. Kind of greedy. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Anyways. <laughs> at the end of the day, guys, I, and I just got back from a deanery meeting, too. I went straight from I had a funeral this morning, went to, to the cemetery and it took a while it was a mexican funeral so there was a uh what do you call that guitar thing with the trumpets mariachi oh mariachi band yeah and so it took a little bit at the cemetery and had to go straight to the deanery meeting hold on was there was there a mariachi band at the cemetery oh yeah you've never seen that (laughs) guys get ready man get ready for priesthood you see it all What? What do they play as you're bearing it's actually, them? It's actually very moving. Like the they walked from the uh, hearse with the casket leading the way up to the place of the burial, and the mariachi was by the hole in the ground playing this kind of mournful but also very mariachi sounding song. Hmm. And it's uh, I don't know. It's kind of like scenes from The Godfather, you know, where they would have a funeral procession and there'd be kind of cultural music trumpets mm-hmm. and horns and guitars and stuff sort of similar or even like um have you ever seen funeral processions uh like new orleans style with the dixie kind of bands off the back of a truck or something playing jazz that's also kind of sad jazz it's not the never... D- it's not the da's era or in Paris. right right it's it's pretty uh it's pretty folk folklorico but Anyways, then I went straight to the deanery meeting, and those are not very inspiring. Mm. Sometimes you're like, I just need to uh, read a book or have a deep conversation about God and not retention ponds and uh, budgets and code and whatever. Well, um, here we are. Here we yeah, are. Man. So let's stop talking about that stuff and start talking about what's real. I Actually, I thought during that meeting, I thought of a Father Gubuzda story when he got back from his 30-day retreat. Uh, which was his, I think, sabbatical. That's when he started IPF. He did his 30-day retreat with Kathy Canavy and Father John Horn. Do you know this story? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And he comes back and uh, back in his home diocese at, at one of those kind of meetings, like a deanery meeting or whatever their equivalent would be. And a lady asked him, oh, where, what'd you do for your sabbatical? And he said, I did a, the 30-day silent retreat, the spiritual exercise of St. Ignatius. She goes, oh, welcome back to the real world. And he goes... Uh, really? Do you think this is the real world? Hmm. <laughs> you know, like line items and, and budgets and, and temporal affairs. I mean, that word real uh, just depends on how you think of it. Certainly those things are more concrete and uh, visible, sensible. But the real world, which one's the real one? You know? Well, hey, on that note, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Relax. All right, so cam night tonight, huh? Cam night tonight. That's right. Did you Good get, to be back. Did you get snacks that uh, comport with the tasty palate of the dogs? Absolutely. Good. I always do. Yeah. Actually, What do those include surprise. these days? Well, I uh, went outside of the box a little bit and got some actually ice cream bars, which I'm pretty excited about. What? Yeah. On a nice little deal on them, so whoa, yeah, and that'll be nice because they're in the freezer. No one will know that they're there, and I'll be able to whip those bad boys out and oh, start zinging them, talking at people's heads. <laughs> I'm gonna hit Kata right in the head. People are gonna don't be say anything, yeah, and then just chuck one at his Zing face. Uh-huh. <laughs> He'll be shocked. He'll be mad and, and then happy. Yep, yep, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> mm. So we uh, we went to the March for Life this past weekend oh, in nice. DC. Yeah, nicely done. How was that? It was it was a great weekend. Yeah, so we left on early Thursday morning. We brought a crew from Mundelein, thirty two guys, and uh, spent Thursday, Friday, and left on Saturday. 
uh, back here to back here to Mundelein. So it was a great trip. It was a great weekend. Had a lot of fun. Um, yeah, marched for marched for life. It was great. So Rob got to come. He was one of the we had like six deacons or so that helped on the trip. So an awesome crew. There's some really good new seminarians here. So it was great to spend some time with them. And um, yeah, it was a it was a it was a great experience all around. I don't know if you've ever been out there for it. Actually, my deacon year, I went the only time I've ever gone, and I cool. I, I enjoyed it very much too. I, it was never something that really um, struck me as something that could be like fun or edifying. It always just seemed like this sacrifice that you'd you'd made, and it bothered me that I'd never done it. You know, for the sake of the the movement. But when you go, you realize like between the mass and the rally and the march itself, um, this is really a kind of a it's almost like focus conference in some ways like this is really an encouraging thing to just have people together and i that was when i first understood that why it's so appropriate to be pro that it's called pro-life you know and sometimes these semantics things you know like with the same-sex marriage you know they they call it marriage equality and stuff like the changing changing the word makes it harder to be against like who can be anti-life you know so they the other side will say we're we're pro-choice we're not pro-abortion you know and so sometimes that feels like a little bit politicking and semantics but when you go you really realize like people the people here at this rally really love life (laughs) you know what i mean like in the general sense and in the truest sense like we think it's good a good thing to be alive you know and i think that that message that's what I, I don't still know if I understand what John Paul II meant by the culture of death, but I think I understand what the culture of life is, which is this thing that celebrates the human person, you know. Um, I have a story to tell. Did you guys have some thoughts? I feel like I'm kind of in a verbal diarrhea mode right now and I don't want to <laughs> run of, are you Are we moving on from the march? No, no, no. It has to do with pro-life oh. stuff. No, dude, and yeah, okay. I mean, it was a great trip, so keep going. Yeah. I uh, went and visited a baby in the hospital uh, this past week, a young couple, I don't know, early, mid-20s at the oldest. It's her first child, and she has Down syndrome and was sick and in the ICU. She was premature as well. And, um, you know, they wanted a blessing. They wanted to do, they didn't want to do the emergency baptism. I don't think it was that dire that she needed to be baptized in the hospital, but, you know, I offered and, um, they said, you know, we just want to have a special baptism in the church, but like just her, you know, so it's like, whatever you, whatever you need, um, I'll accommodate you. And I just got to talking to him and here's this like little peanut of a baby. She's tiny and just a miracle, you know? And, um, I don't know if you've ever seen babies with down syndrome, but you can tell that there's something different. Um, but they're just beautiful. They're like this miracle, you know? And, uh, the couple was so positive and just like, it was no thing. It was not like, I mean, I think they understood that it was going to be difficult to, to raise a child that was disabled. Um, but they were so grateful to have a child and uh, talking about their pregnancy. And I asked like, had you known that she was, um, she had down syndrome while you were pregnant? And they said, yeah, they found out at 20 weeks. And, um, the doctors, now I don't know all the details of like the law and how this works in hospitals and stuff with abortion, but evidently they needed to get some other tests done. They had this indication that they were, that the baby was Down syndrome and then they expedite, they offered to expedite the tests as quickly as possible so that they, they could get in under the wire to do a urgent, like emergency termination before 24 weeks, which is some kind of cutoff. And, um, and the guy, this young man, who's the baby's father was like really, really easy going laid back guy. But you could tell, like, as they're telling this story, he's getting mad. He's like, father, I was so, I was so mad that they were, that they were talking like this. We were like, why? Because Hey, quick. Yeah. Hey, clarification question. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Um, is the baby, was, was the baby born premature? She was. But this, okay. was, this how, how, was while she was still. Ah, uh, good question. I don't know how many weeks premature. Okay. Maybe at like a month or two. Do you know the weight of the baby? No. Okay. 
Uh, yeah, okay. She was small though. Yeah. She was a month, a born a month ago when I saw her. Okay. Um, but in any case, you know, they wanted, the doctors were like, it, I don't know if they were taking for granted or they were pushing her, her or, or just like trying to be of service. Like they were, like they thought it was, they were helping by saying like, we will do everything in our power to get in on time so that you can abort this baby under the wire, you know, but they received it as this, this awful thing to say, you know, and the, both of them, but the husband, especially, you know, like this is our baby, no matter what, you know, and after she was born, I said, how are the, how are they now? Like, cause it was the same hospital. How are they, how are the people now that she's born? And they're like, Oh, of course, like everybody loves her and she's a total gift. And, and there's no sense after she's born that like, this is a bad baby. Right. But, uh, or that it would be better if she wasn't alive, but there's something about being in the womb that, I, mean, I don't know. It's some, there's something wrong with us that we think that, that anyone would think that like, oh, well, this baby's not perfect or there's something wrong and, and it, would be, it would be better if they didn't survive. So that's what I guess I meant by the march feeling like we are, we are for being alive. For everybody to be alive is good, you know. Um, and that is just such a happy message. <laughs> and you feel, I don't know how you guys felt, but I felt really good. And like my spirit was buoyed by, it didn't feel like a, like an angry march, like we're angry and we're marching, we're protesting. It was more like, hey, just just a quick reminder, world. Uh, babies are great. Life is great. It's hard sometimes, but even in hard situations, you can see the beauty of it, you know. And I guess that's what I saw. I was so impressed with this couple that like they just knew that this was the right thing to do. And I don't know. It <clears throat> I would concur. I mean, that's a beautiful story. And um, I mean, the experience of the march was overwhelmingly positive yeah. for for me, too. You know, there was a, um, you know, there was like a couple signs, I think, that <clears throat> I don't just rubbed me the wrong way a little bit, like kind of taking a like pretty aggressive approach to like the evil that is there. Mm -hmm. And again, it wasn't even those like weren't it wasn't like just so over the top. It was just like, man, I don't know. Like it just didn't quite fit the other mold because overwhelmingly 95% was exactly that. Like it was just the word that just kept coming to mind is like how happy of a place mm -hmm. it was. Like you could pop in and out and like you had, you had families with little kids, you had all kinds of high schoolers, you had um, like just young and old across the board. And it was, yeah, an overwhelmingly positive experience i did not expect it to move me as much as it did um, that's exactly how i felt <clears throat> yep and um and just like the legitimacy of w w what it is as far as um civilly as well to be there i thought cardinal dolan gave a really nice homily and i remembered like the whole kind of layout of it but i he just made like just a i think a really cool distinction not even distinction, like just how he worded it. He said, you know, we're here to be together and to fight for civil rights. And like, what a great place this is that like we can be here and, and fight for that. That's the word he used is civil rights, which is spot on. And then his last point in his homily, and he was like, and we're here as Catholics to like pray against this evil that's going on. Um, and so it's not that I didn't know that before, but I thought his, his homily was just, it was very simple, but it was it was just very, very good of like how important this fight is civilly and then how real like the spiritual nature of stuff that's going on, too. And he's like, we're here to be joyful and to pray, hmm. you know, um, I was like, that's just that's it, man. Yeah, it's powerful to to experience the march and to be a part of it, because I mean, I haven't. Actually, I don't know if I've ever done any other march besides that. Um, but it's a march that lives out what they're saying. So, like, we're pro-life. And then you look at that march and you see life at all stages, um, like, live, seem to be lived fully. So, like, you go to the train station and you have parents, like, scrambling with a bunch of kids running around the place. And 
um, like lots of high schoolers, lots of young people. Um, but then, you know, older people who are there marching as well. Um, so you can see there, there's a type of living out of what they're preaching. And I think that witness is very, very powerful as well. And I mean, there's a whole spectrum of, um, not just opinions, but experiences around the issue itself around abortion. So you have like the young family who is living this, trying to live this culture of life. And then, you know, you get up to the top, um, like around the Capitol building, um, and people are giving testimonies about how they've been so traumatized and hurt by their own experiences with abortion, which is very, very heavy. Um, so you get this whole range of experience where it's, you know, we're not in la la land. Like there's still this stark reality of the severe evil that's present, but you also see the remedy in the march itself. Um, so there's, you know. there's something too out there, the experience of, um, because I really do think whatever that is, like whatever that culture of life is exactly like the working kind of definite, we know the experience of it and like we can point to it. Um, but whatever that is, it also allows it just to be like almost like funneled to like a very sharp point in the experience of like, I think that started for me, it's a little bit abstract, but we were at the big Basilica mass that Cardinal Dolan preached the night before. And just randomly, uh, we both got to distribute communion at that mass, like where we were sitting and they needed some deacons to do it. It just happened that we got to, they, one of the seminarians that was like, you know, one of the MCs grabbed us. And so it was just cool because we got to like walk out and I, it was probably only two seconds and I got a whole view of this massive basilica just full of people. Hmm. I mean, so many people. And then two minutes later, I was distributing Holy Communion and it was just like I got to see all of these individual faces, which was it was very, very cool. And that was kind of the experience of the march itself was like that. I just I've never been in a mass of people like that where it's like so far up and so far back. It's like I don't know how to describe that really. It's cool. Um, But just like everywhere you turned, whether it was in our Mundelein group or just random people like just over and over again, people were there for the same reason. Like it was like a real kind of mission uniting, uniting it in it. Um, so it's just this really cool of like this like grand scale thing of like, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people there. And then my own personal experience in it was like everywhere I turned to individuals there, it was like, yeah, they come with their own unique story and like why they're there exactly. But like just the clarity of what they're doing there is is so united. Um, It's a very cool thing. I've never experienced anything quite the same as it. Yeah. Yeah, And I mean, even growing up, like our family, we would we would do the march every single year, either in Atlanta or we'd go up to D.C. I mean, I had been to that maybe three or four times growing up. So, you know, this is either like my fourth or my fifth time to actually go to D.C., but first time as a seminarian, Mm -hmm. um, which was a whole new experience in and of itself um, to represent the seminary and to go wearing a collar. Like all 32 of us were marching in collars underneath the Mundelein banner. Um, But that was actually a a really important moment for me when I look back in college because I was at school in Memphis and I remember the weekend that... The, all the marches were going on and my family was doing it in Atlanta. And th- I mean, there wasn't any March in Memphis, but uh, I just remember driving back to campus one day and saw some people, not a ton, but some people out on one of the main drags, just holding signs that said like, you know, I, su- I support life and, um, you know, abortion needs to end and things like that. And I just knew like, this is something I believe in Mm -hmm. very, very dearly. And so that was the first time I ever went out by myself and just stood out on the road with a sign. Um, and it was so, but it was so connected with my faith. That was an important moment where I took something that was faith related as a high schooler, as, um, you know, as a child Mm -hmm. and made it my own. Um, and, and it was around this cause of life that, like orthopraxy led to orthodoxy. So I didn't, 
I, I probably couldn't have articulated exactly why I believe like in the detail of the human dignity and the rights of all people, mm-hmm. but I knew I stood for life. And so by actually exercising this belief, it helped me to like deepen a lot of the other beliefs that came along with it. Um, yeah, so it was, that was an important moment for me. I wouldn't say it was like a, a massive moment, but this is mine. I believe in this. Hmm. Um, I think it led to, to deeper things as well within me. So it is, it's very pro-life. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, that, I think it is really crucial that it remains that way, that this positive pro-life, like you were saying, Rob, about the signs that some of, some of which were a little bit on the aggressive side or abortion is murder kind of stuff, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I preached this morning cause it was the liturgically, that's the day that, uh, the USCCB asked us to do the day of penance or, or prayer for the protection of unborn children. Um, and so I preached, I didn't, I didn't really preach a, this Sunday. To be honest with you, it doesn't, it doesn't really click on my radar very often to my, to my shame. I don't, uh, I don't think about it that much. And I, 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 I'll never forget a homily I heard in college, um, on the subject of abortion about around this time of year, it was probably the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And, um, priest at the Newman Center was very ginger and treaded very lightly, you know, because you, you have to record, you have to recognize the fact that, um, just by the odds, there are multiple women in your, in your audience who have had abortions, you know? Um, and so to come guns blazing and say what a grave evil this is without recognizing the, tra- the great trauma that it is too, and that people of goodwill can make this, um, uh, decision uh, without themselves being evil, even if the decision is something bad, um, you know, and there's, there are whatever mitigating circumstances, pressures, and, and even the culture itself, um, that make it so like to, I don't know, it's very easy for, I mean, we know, we know this woman who, who spoke to you guys, it sounds like, and spoke to me, but when I was a deacon in the confession practicum about her own experience with abortion and healing. Mm-hmm. Um, before I get into that, I, I guess the, the thing that I'll never forget is uh, this priest talking about how as hard as it is to talk about this and as many people as this, I mean, it's very, it's, it's much easier to just ignore this because you'll offend people and you'll, people might walk out if you say something that's not exactly sensitive or, or whatever. But if you talk frankly about the nature of abortion, um, but I don't want to be the priest who, while the Jews were getting, you know, trucked off to, to camps where they got gassed, like you're preaching about, um, you know, God's love and some kind of flowery message while, you know, people can hear through the windows, the trains, you know, going down the track, um, mm-hmm. like that image of world war two really haunted me, you know, that this is, this too is a, uh, you know, you might not right now be subject to like that kind of criticism if you just keep your mouth shut and preach about stuff that you know won't offend anybody um but history will not be kind to you you know you look back at the church in that time and and priests who who didn't do anything or of any of any faith and certainly that's nazi germany is not the only country there's you know places in latin america and south america where people were tortured and and the church didn't didn't talk about it you know because politics you know I, i don't talk about politics and I don't know. But my point is, I'll never forget this. And this is what I mentioned in my homily this morning about being tender on this subject while also being firm about the evil of killing children. Um, this woman who now works for the archdiocese and, and talked to us seminarians about her experience, you know, in college had had an abortion. You know, the guy that she was with was she didn't have any intentions of marrying this guy. And he wasn't it wasn't the guy for her. He was kind of a boy. And um she was going to go through with it and have a, have the kid, but then sort of like just came upon her like a flood. This would be so much easier if it, and the problem would just go away if I just did this. And she rationalized it and did it and for years lived with that and not, didn't really go there in her own conscience and her own memory. And finally, you know, little by little, it kind of came crashing in on her and her, her faith was there to kind of save her and a, and a good priest who listened and didn't judge her and who, who kept his mouth shut when he needed to keep his mouth shut and said the right thing when he needed to say something and led her to this whole process of healing 
um, you know, and praying for her child and really kind of reconciling with God and herself and, and the child that she killed or, or chose to end her life. And then one day, now, now she's married and has kids and she looks like this perfect Catholic woman, you know, with her, with her little kid walking beside her and her baby strapped to her stomach with the kind of hipster like sling, you know, and she's <laughs> praying the rosary in front of this kind of memorial to the unborn, um, like a Marian shrine or something like that. And it's her and this old, older lady both praying the rosary uh, silently. And the lady's kind of looking at her dreamily and her baby and how beautiful this scene is of a mother and child and praying to Mary. And she just says to her, can you believe that there are women out there that would kill their child? And she said that if she hadn't gone through all this, all these years of healing and hadn't had these good priests and good Catholics in her life, like she would have just walked up and never considered the Catholic church ever again, you know? Um, but because she had experienced healing, like she could, she could kind of brush that off as just well-intentioned, but a horrible thing to say. Um, and if that woman had known, you know, she probably wouldn't have said it, but she, she thought she was just making some kind of like moral platitude that obviously this is such a horrible thing that women kill their children, but she d hadn't walked in her shoes. She didn't understand who she was talking to and and we never do. And I guess that's the point is like all of these things. And as a priest, you get a little bit of a, a peek into the walking wounded and, uh, you know, Pope Francis's metaphor of the, of the field hospital is dramatic. Like, I don't think I really understood it until I watched, we were soldiers the other day with father Tom Byrne. Oh, um, dude. And love like, that movie. They set up an actual field hospital and you see how just horrific and gory it is. Mm -hmm. the triage and and you're like if that's what the pope means by the church as a field hospital then um we need to get to work <laughs> you know and and acknowledge the wounds and like start start to dress some of these wounds you know um but that's all i have to say about that i think that it's it has to be positive <clears throat> and that, i guess that's what and I, I do feel convicted that i should be preaching about this on sundays and when when people yeah. actually are there um but always with that, with that in mind. Yeah. And I think it's, but that's exactly it is like the positive approach to it is it just, um, speaks so much more eloquently than anything else of even like shifting it a little bit. Uh, we can certainly say more if you guys want to, but when I was at SLS this, whatever, a few weeks ago, uh, sister Bethany Madonna from the sisters of life mm, gave yeah. this incredible talk right before um, adoration, the night I was there. And she told a couple different stories, which were all great. She's an amazing storyteller. But she told us one of, they had just given the award to this guy. I think he might be passed away, and I could have this wrong, but I think it was the guy who um, like came up with dialysis, kidney dialysis, the doctor. Oh, I the love doctor. this story, yeah. Yeah, and... <clears throat> I don't know the story, by the I way. I had never heard it before. Um, but pretty much this, this doctor maybe living in New York, I don't know, wherever, um, 1950s, somewhere in there, look up the details, et cetera. But he comes up with dialysis, which is going to save, I mean, like thousands and thousands of lives. And there was something that happened with the patent for it that he couldn't get the patent right away. So he was working with like some company and pretty much they said like, okay, this is ready to go. And, but in order to get the patent for this, um, we need to like wait a year, you know, kind of go through like this paperwork, this legal stuff to be able to do it. And so he has this weigh in on him. And so he goes home and he talks to his dad and it sounded like they were like a pretty humble, like, um, means family. Yeah. 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 Italian immigrants. And he was telling his, his dad of like, um, yeah, I don't know how the conversation went, but I mean, this thing is worth billions of of dollars and like all we have to do it's going to save hundreds of thousands of people and like now all we have to do is just wait until they get the stuff figured out and um but it was weighing on the guy that he um like couldn't release it right away because it was ready to go and he figured that like in the first year of waiting that would cost probably like 50,000 people their lives well and like so it would have like, saved it would have saved those people or at least it would have saved longer. 
Right. So like if he rolls it out and says, nope, like here's here's the stuff. Get on it. Anybody can use it for free. Anybody can use it for free Mm -hmm. versus waiting the year to like kind of shore up all the money pretty much. Then like 50,000 people would die because of that. And I guess like it was just a conversation with his dad. And it wasn't even like a thought in his dad's mind of like, like, you know what you have to do. He goes, uh, uh, even, if, even if it's one life, right? Do you mm-hmm. remember what he said? No. Uh-uh. He goes, uh, Lasciare, which means let it go. Like, let it go, son. He goes, um, he goes, oh, no, because right. if you don't, if you don't, then when you shave in the morning, that's right. Your face will come off. And instead of your own face in the mirror, you'll see the face of all these people who can't look at their loved ones anymore. And every time you go out to dinner, you'll have to add an extra seat for all those people who, who can't have dinner with their families anymore. And he goes, for what? For cars? For vacations? For a bigger house? He goes, no, my son, let it go. <laughs> and it's like this kind of a poetic Italian Mm. especially from like a poor a poor man mm-hmm. you know whose son had made it and he was this doctor who's going to be an inventor and a rich and famous and and yeah he let it go he never made any never made a cent on and this so, billion yeah, dollar they, invention so that yeah. doctor never made a penny on no it. way yep. and wow like seeming i don't know but like how i surmise from the story like was he himself, like let alone his dad or his family, but he himself was like never a millionaire or anything yeah, yeah. like that. Just kind of went about his work then. Wow. Yeah. That's so that's pro-life. that's <laughs> pro-life and it's also cost of discipleship, you know? Sure. Absolutely. Like that, this cost, <clears throat> this is going to cost you something. And sometimes it's those costs that are the, are the hardest, like stuff that you didn't even know you had or had the opportunity to have you have to give up, you know, it's not just stuff that you already have that you have to give away. It's like the potential to have stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you can have a billion dollars if you do this thing. That's that, you know, is wrong <laughs> all of a sudden, like a day ago, that wasn't a thing, but now it is. And that decision is very, very hard. Like you didn't ever know that you were going to have a billion dollars, but now it's, it's going to destroy you unless you, unless you say no to it. Yeah. It's crazy. That's crazy. amazing. I remember asking my mom. Actually, it was pretty interesting. Over the summer, I was invited by like a, a Bible group that was mostly young couples to come over and just have dinner. And it was a, an incredible experience. And we're kind of sitting around the table. There's f- probably five different young couples either already married and expecting or about to get married. And they found out that I was one of 11. And so they they wanted to know, like, hey, do you have any um, marital advice? Which is <laughs> beyond ironic, <laughs> asking a 27-year-old celibate about <laughs> marital advice. Um, so I said, you know what, let me just sit here and let me just think about it while we eat. And if I think of anything, I'll let you know because nothing came to mind. And the two things that I thought of, neither of which I learned in seminary, but both of which I learned from my mom um, is the first one was if you ever think your marriage is in trouble because of your children, don't focus on your children. Like don't try and fix your children to fix your marriage, but try and talk to your spouse and fix your marriage. And most likely it'll actually help the child. Hmm. So instead of looking at the, at the child and saying, you're the problem, you're the reason why we have stress in our life, which is messing with our marriage try and reconcile your marriage and I guarantee you it'll trickle down and, hmm. and actually help your children to behave better um, in whatever capacity that looks like. Which I remember my mom telling me and thinking, I've never thought about that before. Huh. And she said anytime that like y'all were messing up as like getting wild as children, I knew that me and your dad would would need to talk. And she said almost every single time, like once we once we chit chatted and got on the same page, then it would bring about peace to the rest of the family. So I, I said that, and then the second one was, she's she my mom is so adamant about <clears throat> just what a gift it was for them when they first got married. They it wasn't right away, but it was relatively quickly they started having children, and of course like the church grants that you always use prudence, 
Um, but in discerning, like when you're supposed to have children, so there, there's always freedom that's there. But she talked about how important it was for having children right off the bat because it immediately geared the family around the children so that in a sense there wasn't any time for mom and dad to get stuck in their own ways where it was just them, where like their marriage and the family was self-serving for them, where right off the bat, because they had children they had to take care of, the two of them together were always outward looking towards the children. Um, And she said in a lot of ways it combated this tendency towards selfishness and made them be generous, Hmm. which, which I think when we talk about pro-life, like that is an adventure that, that children provide an adventure and a challenge that children provide that if you don't have children in your marriage, um, you, you don't have a, a screaming baby to take you out of what you want to do in your own time, in your own place. Um, and in a lot of ways, it they teach you how to love in a way that you could never do if it's just you and your and your spouse. Hmm. Um, and so the gift of ch- children is not just like, oh, now you have children that bear life to the world, and we're you know being obedient to the the biblical precept of procreate and and you know reproduce and multiply. But in the same way that the parents teach the children how to love, the children teach the parents how to love, oftentimes in hard love, but nonetheless, like I look at my mom and my dad and lots of other great families and they would not be the loving parents that they are, like the loving, generous people that they are if it wasn't for us wrecking their world and like making them come out of themselves. Hmm. Um, And I think when you look at like big families who are living this culture of life, there is a spirit of generosity that's been cultivated over time where I'm going to die to myself for you right in front of me for you. And I, I mean, it's a beautiful thing that it's tough to put your finger on, but that's the adventure of family that children provide that like, I mean, that's the contraceptive mentality. It deprives parents of becoming the people that they were meant to be. But God intends you to be fully yourself and he'll even use your kid pooping his pants in public and like embarrassing you and whatever, like any number of stories. Yeah. (laughs) To, to train that and discipline that in you. Um, so that was the two things that I told those, those couples. And, Hmm. um, I mean, that was stuff that I just learned at home, like just talking to my mom about her own experience of motherhood and of, of a family. Um, it reminds me of this. That's awesome. But it reminds me, you know, the story uh, that always stuck with me from a priest that I know pretty well. He had a big impact on me. And um, yeah, I haven't thought about this in a long time, actually, but um, kind of leave it vague. But he's a, he's a really good priest, and he's just kind of like a make no small plans priest, similar to like a, a, like a Bishop Barron mentality of like, oh, go get him. So he's accomplished like some wild things at the placements that he has been at, just really had a lot of like God's blessing on on those places and built all kinds of stuff. And except, I mean, it's like forming real, like real disciples where he's at. And um, and so I asked him one time. It was like, you know, he had this kind of like major campaign going for like a big project, and I mean, it's going to be like a long time before this thing is finished up. And I asked him something about like, oh man, do you think you're going to like be here forever? Like, you know, because um, he, he was probably in his 50s or something. Like, what's any thoughts on that? He's like, well, he's like, honestly, I don't really like think about that like day to day. I just try to like give as much as I can um, to it and like kind of invest everything I can. And he's like, I guess in my ideal world is like, I would kind of have this finished up in maybe about, I don't know, like seven to 10 years. And then it'd be really sweet to get like a nice quiet, like, country parish somewhere for like four or five years and then he laughed and he was like and honestly like i just kind of hope i die after that <laughs> um but he he said it of like i had never heard it spoken so freely of like there was no like workaholic coming out in him yeah. in that was just like i just want my life to be totally given and used up at the end of it hmm. and kind of whatever comes is fine but he's like that would kind of just be ideal for me like yeah. just just use me up 
you know, and keep giving because it's like so life giving to me to continue to do yeah. all this stuff. Yeah. That I just want to have like I want to go to God with empty hands at the end of it. Yeah. Um, I just thought that was such a cool mentality for priesthood. Yeah. And yeah. That's a cool As, way to bring it home, too, because I, I, a lot of times I'll feel like everything you said, Mike, was so true. But it's also I can't help but think um, having children is probably way different and way more difficult than we can ever imagine not ever having had children or been married and the, the stresses that it puts on marriage and also the question of not being able to have children there's a lot of people who can't and if you if you say things like you know you're not becoming the person you're supposed to be if you don't have children there's all of these kind of things that you can't you you know until you walk a mile in somebody else's shoes it's 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 really hard and the vocations are complementary of celibacy and and uh, mm-hmm. marriage, but I like bringing that home to the, the priesthood side of things, like you just did, Rob. Because there, there is a way of being a selfish priest. I know there is, because I felt tempted to it, and maybe even done it at some points. Like this is, you know, there's a way that I can live my life as a priest that's very comfortable and in my comfort zone, and I have everything that I need. And um, there's risks that I can take and and responsibilities that I can take on uh, freely that would be akin to having another child, you know, like adding one more mouth to feed in my house uh, is one more one more job to do or one more thing that you make yourself available for for people. And you're like, if I do that, I will have I will have less freedom. My life will be less my own. Um, But like you said, Mike, about parenthood, it's like, but if you don't, you you actually will be less free and you will be less your own because uh, it's really true that only he who loses his life will save it. Um, and like that priest just wanting to use himself up or be used up is beautiful. Like very rarely in uh, people's five-year or 10-year or 50-year plans uh, does it include uh, death. Um, you're like, and then I hope I die. Like that's part of my like it always just kind of leaves it open ended. Like then I'll retire and we'll you know get a place in Florida and dot dot dot. You know, mm-hmm. hopefully not die. <laughs> this is the implied, <laughs> but you're gonna die. So what do you? I mean, how do you want? How much stuff do you want when you die? How much? How much do you want in your bank account? How much comfort can you give yourself before you die? And it's a lot. Um, more freeing but scary to be like I want I want to have nothing left by the time I die then I will be free I'll be the man on the cross and just give it all all back in whatever way that I'm supposed to either as a married person or parent or married person who's not a parent but takes care of you know someone else's children or the foster children or adopted or for a priest or religious who has spiritual children um, I mean, yeah, it's just such a, it's such a free way to at least try to live your life, you right. know? Cause like that guy, whether that priest or who have like, there's just no connotation, there's no like, it, like hidden thing of it of like, I mean, I'm sure in the next sentence, like he'd love to have a few years of retirement as a priest or like go and do whatever. So there's nothing like, right. And I also don't subscribe to the fact that like to, to, to use yourself up or, or to really, you know, to put it all out on the line, like leave it all on the field, as they say, means Mm -hmm. that you're miserable all the time and that you're always tired and bleary eyed and never get enough sleep and never have good times with friends and eat big meals and, oh yeah, drinks with people and relax. Like that's part of it too. Sucking the marrow out of life is enjoying it too, you know? So. Yeah, and if I can just offer a, a clarification is in no way would I say that like you can't live a fulfilled life if you don't have children. I mean, obviously as a sure. celibate, I wouldn't subscribe to that. Mm-hmm. Um, or even if like if you are not able to have children as a couple, like then that's obviously not God's intention for you. And mm-hmm. that doesn't mean he's abandoned you or left you. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, the bigger point that I was making, yeah, I and mean, just a clarification is we need other people to take us out of our own world and God provides us. Yeah. And God provides those people in whatever vocation and in whatever way he asks you to live that vocation, he's always going to provide circumstances and specifically people in this case to remind us that, I mean, like 
this all just smacks of Baron's three ways, mm. his three paths. Like your life is not your own. God is in the center. You're a sinner. And well, and then, then your life is not your own. Right. Yeah, I kind of <laughs> yeah. kind of got him a little bring, backwards. Bring it back. Um, but all those things are present. And I think that's why it does correlate so well to the priesthood. Because, I mean, I don't know if you see it, Father Connor, but just hearing you talk, especially over the last year or so, when you've had like some added paternal fatherly responsibility at your parish, like you get pulled all over the place. I mean, mm-hmm. even just that, you know, phone calls and meetings and things like that that are totally unplanned um, and mistakes that let you know, like you're not God and your life isn't yours. I mean, all these vocations, they, they provide us with that. But I think we have so many resources that can build up um, our own life situation that makes us think like we have everything under control hmm. and that we are the center of it um, and that everything's perfect. And like, Children or friends or anybody, in a lot of ways, they break into our life and let us know that's not the case and and that our life is not our own um, and that the Lord is the center and we need him big time. Um, and without those daily realizations, like we can get so short up in our own mentality and doing what we want instead of like, because the way I hear that priest sentence of, and then maybe I'll die is like, I have I have no idea. I'm open to whatever the Lord wants to provide. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like being able to live a life that freely is radical. Well, I think w- what maybe made me think of it, like I said, I hadn't thought about it for a long time. Yeah. But just like the stories of your parents and just like the radical life that they live, yeah. which is so cool. But he just had this mentality as a priest of like, listen, I'm just going to go like pedal to the metal yeah for as long as i can and i'm gonna do it prudently and like live a really high quality life and have fun and have friends yeah. i mean he lives that very well right you right. know he's very happy but he's like yeah like i just want to i won't you know i know who i am and i'm gonna like get after this yeah. um which is what seems like is going on at the Mets household. Go, go <laughs> hard or go home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 If my dad was a priest, that's what it would look like. Probably. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's his Episcopal <laughs> motto. Whatever, however yeah, you say that in Latin. Or... Yeah. <laughs> uh, for some yeah. reason, when you said, uh, you said big time earlier, Mike, I hadn't heard that phrase in a while. And I thought of that scene from, uh, what's that where he slapped a bass? You know that? Slap the bass, big time, big time. Slap yeah, the yeah, bass. yeah, yeah. I love you, man. Yeah, that's what it is. Slap at the bass. Slap at the bass, man. Slap at the bass. Oh man, me, me and my friend PJ were doing that for a while, shortly after college, and there was one night where we were hanging out, and our friend Dave Hazen was so sick of us doing that. But it was kind of the kind of thing, you know, Dave Hazen, right, Rob? Yeah, Big yeah. Focus guy, great guy. But he was so sick of us doing it, which just made us want to do it even more. Like, hey, Dave, I slapped the best, man. <laughs> like, yeah. Shut up, guys. It's not funny. But that made it funny that he didn't think it was funny. Yeah. <laughs> Sense of humor is so subjective, man. Like, Rob doesn't get tweets. Did you get some of those <laughs> ones that I sent you, by the way? The, those last ones when I took that phone call? Yeah, I think so. Did you read the one about the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. ninjas? I- the yeah. ninjas one, dude. It got my funny bone pretty good. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I'll put that in the show notes so people can read it. Do it. It's not that it's like not funny. It just doesn't cut me up, you know. Right. I think it's the kind of it's the genre is new to you. If you if you got more used to it. Although I don't know, I I kind of gravitated toward it. Yeah. Hey, Father, I I'm gonna send you a video. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to send you a video via text or whatever. It's going to be on the Rob Me and You text stream. Okay. And you just respond. Let me know what you think about it. All right. Because I, I have some uh, hypotheses of why, well, of just uh, your taste of humor. Okay. So this is a, a sort of a test right here. <laughs> this is the scientific model being, huh? This is a video I'm going to watch? Yeah, this is a video you're going to watch. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I so text ah, I don't know if you'll like it. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Some of the biggest meatheads that I know enjoy this video. So, <laughs> is this yeah. long or short? No, it's short. It's under a minute. Okay. It's under a minute. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a joke on, well, yeah. Is it bro science? It's a type of bro science. 
<laughs> I can confidently say that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, mm. you're not texting it to me now. Oh, I mean, do you want it right now? Oh, I thought I was. I thought it was waiting for you to text me. Never mind. Oh. No, I can. I can watch it later. Oh yeah. I thought yeah, we were yeah. gonna do this live on the air. Oh. This experiment. Whoa. The science experiment. Mm-hmm. Now we'd have to wait to watch you watch the video. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, bro, dudes, I should probably get going. I got a series of tubes, series of appointments tonight. Ooh. Five, six, and seven. I need to get some evening wow. prayer in there. Good That's for you, man. Point. Oh, my gosh. Last night I had awesome, awesome time. Father Tom Byrne turned 34, and oh. Sister Alicia and Sister Kay came down. And the, Tom and Sister Alicia are both big kind of cook people obviously sister lisa is a nationally known and recognized chef and just tom, likes to, yeah. tom likes to try um no they're very, both very good but they made like a seven course meal last night and me and sister kate played music she played cello i played the tin whistle and guitar felt like a very cultured evening habited nuns and priests you know dude that dining, is good life cooking and that, dining and that's living it singing talking of spiritual things that's awesome. We're going down on Wednesday, actually, and Sister's going to prepare a big old meal for us. We'll uh, get to eat with the... Petite soirée. Petite soirée. Oh, that's a so soirée, gonna... soirée, huh? Petite soirée. I guess so. That's what she told us. I don't us. know. That's what she had in her email. <laughs> <laughs> I trust her. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good girl.